Well, let me invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We're in Isaiah chapter 20. I shared last week that Isaiah 13 through 23 are these oracles of judgment against various nations. And we looked at Isaiah 17, so you know how to handle one of those. And we come to Isaiah 20, little parental advisory. The word naked and buttocks appears in this passage, so we're thankful the VBS kids went off to Sunday school. But if you need to laugh, go ahead, laugh. The Bible is an incredible and unusual book standing uniquely in history, and we're going to see God commands Isaiah to do something very unusual. We're thankful it's unique to redemptive history in this passage But let's look together. I'm going to read Isaiah 21 through 6 to you. In the year that the commander-in-chief who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it, at that time the Lord spoke by Isaiah the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush, their hope. And of Egypt their boast. And the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? Let's pray together. Lord, how we thank you for your word, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, cutting us down. To the very marrow, would you lead us and give us hope and joy, we pray, as we look at your word in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, just about everywhere you go, you see escape routes, don't you? I mean, you could be at a hotel and on the back of the door is posted there, your escape route. In case of fire, this is where you're supposed to go. If you drive from... The coast from Corpus Christi to San Antonio, you are on a hurricane evacuation route. We're in a culture that is obsessed with safety and escape routes. And we see at the end of this passage this question, how shall we escape? What is your evacuation route from this crazy world, the all-you-can-eat buffet of craziness that we are served up daily? What is your escape route? And some people envision Christianity, the Christian faith, is a get-out-of-hell-free faith where we punch out and escape. But there's more significance to this question of how shall we escape. It's a question of really, where's the good life located? If I have depended on certain things to deliver me from discomfort in this world, sin or evil, and those things have let me down. How am I going to escape? How am I going to escape God's judgment? How am I going to escape the craziness of this world? Really, where is the good life 
located and how do I live it as an individual? And part of what this passage gets at, Isaiah's words definitely speak to this. They speak to this in the inverse. What I mean by that is a misplaced faith and a misplaced hope has been dashed in this uh, passage, as I'll show you. And so, where can they depend? What is a life look like that's dependent upon God for safety and deliverance and to live the true good life? How shall we escape? How shall we live in the midst of the threats that we have in our world? And the first thing I'm going to show you here, and there's an outline in your bulletin if you want to follow along. The first thing I'll show you is there's a determined obedience that Isaiah has. And you see this in verses 1 through 2. In the first part of this passage, you see there in verse 1, in the year that the commander-in-chief who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod. Now, this is the year 711. And the commander-in-chief, think of him like a general of the army of Assyria. Now, Assyria was an intimidating force. They were indeed powerful, and they were rising and threatening the northern kingdom because of their location there and the southern kingdom as well. And so the nations were agitated at this time to try to make alliances to fight against the Assyrians who outnumbered them. And so the Assyrians come to Ashdod. It's a Philistine city, and they fight against it, and they capture it. And so what the Lord tells Isaiah to do here, this is the unusual part, loose his sackcloth. So sackcloth was black, coarse clothing that somebody would wear when they're in mourning. And Isaiah is in mourning at the disobedience of Israel. So he is an object lesson as well. This is not just, this is where you go beyond words to the life that you live, a life of obedience and certainly Isaiah is committed to this. So he's told to loose the sackcloth from, from his waist, take off his sandals from his feet, and walk around naked and barefoot. And this is a sign, a visible sign to everyone. Think of it as the most pronounced bulletin board you could ever have when you would walk around and see this guy because he's walking around like a POW. That's how things went in the ancient world. If you conquered a people, you stripped them down, you humiliated them, and then you led them off as captives. And that's what's happening here. And notice two things. Isaiah here is faithful to what God commands him to do. He is totally committed to it. It seems absurd. It's embarrassing, but he does it. There's a determined obedience, and by that I mean there's really two facets to it. One is God determines what the obedience is here, not people, not the winds of our culture. God determines what obedience is. And then notice here, notice what you don't have here. I mean, maybe you would be like me. Uh, God... Um, no. There's no questioning. Do you notice that? 
There might have been a struggle, but it's left out of the text. We don't know, but we know something of Isaiah that automatically he is going to do what God commands him to do. Now, why is that? First thing, Isaiah knew God's love. That's one of the things that motivates Isaiah's obedience here. He knew God's love. If we go all the way back to chapter 1, and you see in chapter 1, God lists here everything that Isaiah, everything that the Israelites are doing wrong. And then suddenly in chapter 1, verse 18, we read this. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. This is exemplary of God's love for sinners like us. He doesn't save us based on our performance or our perceived righteousness. He saves us out of his great love for sinners, his generous love. And so Isaiah knew this love, and it motivated him to obedience, but then as you're on your way back to Isaiah 20, stop off at Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah knew the holiness of God. And in chapter 6, you see this vision that Isaiah has. And in cha chapter 6, verse 3, we read, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. So you see, Isaiah knew the love of God. He knew the holiness of God. And so when a challenging command came from God, Isaiah was determined to obey it. Even when everyone around him was disobeying, Christian obedience is based on the love of God and an apprehension. And we can't fully apprehend God's holiness, His holiness, His otherness but it motivates our obedience. And we need that stark, bare contrast. You see what I did there? Stark, bare contrast in this world, don't we? Christians, I mean, I'm appalled at how Christians are living today, denying the reality of what God has set forth in His, world, in His Word, and as well... So worried, so despairing, it, we live as if this world is out of control. We live as if God is not sovereign. Worried, despairing, complaining. That's how Christians are living today. And instead, through the great love that God has for us, and the wonder of His holiness... We should move forward in obedience as Isaiah does here. Now look at verse 3. Three years. Now biblical scholars debate all kinds of weird things. And the debate here is whether or not Isaiah is, as we say in Texas, buck naked. Or if he's wearing his undies. For three years he walked around like this. It was a obedience over a long time. And he walked that road and he did that because he understood how loving God is and how holy he is. And it moved him to change his life and to follow God. You know, we're living at a time where even our calendar 
is getting taken over. Have you noticed that? Even the covenant sign of the rainbow, which is an incredible sign of God's love for His people. If you think about this rainbow, it is a bow that is facing towards heaven as God's judgment would land on Christ and not on us again after the flood. Even the rainbow has been co-opted and taken over. And as God's people, we are adopting worldly strategies. What is our strategy? Instead of standing out, we're looking to blend in. We're looking to somehow be nice and compassionate enough to where we will get out of this situation that we're in. It's a unique moment, but it isn't a unique moment to obey God in. And we're called to lovingly move forward and to be, to be the weird ones in our society. As, I w- as Tracy and I were raising our children every now and then, you know, you try to reason with your kids um, as they reach a certain age and you're saying, you know, some of you parents might have heard yourself say, well, you're not getting a cell phone in preschool. And you're trying to explain this to your child. And eventually, of course, they're not going to understand. There just needs to be a following and obedience. And sometimes you get to that point. I don't know if you've experienced this as a parent. We're the weird ones. We're going to be the weird ones on this. We're going to be the only one who is going to go this direction. And you sort of take the high ground as a parent when you do that. When you just admit, we're going to be those weird Jesus freaks. That'll be us. And we as Christians can live as those outsiders who are weird. And we can do so without the aggressiveness that our world is maybe looking for, for us to exhibit. That aggressiveness and even that edge, that hatred, it has no place in Christianity. We are the weird ones. We're going to be taken advantage of. It's not going to be fair. We are going to be wrongly judged by the world. And that's okay. They did that to our Savior too. It is walking in the way of Jesus. And so as our calendar gets taken over, as the sign of the rainbow gets co-opted, as pride becomes a virtue, not a vice, we together must have this determined obedience based on God's great love for his people and our apprehension of his holiness. That's what motivated Isaiah here. And so we're talking about how shall we escape? How are we going to get out of this? Determined obedience. And then look at verses 3 through 5. There's this dismay over misplaced hope. And so Isaiah's walking around like this for three years there in verse 3. And we see God interprets it as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush. Now that word portent, what that means is it's in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 18. And this sign is a powerful and marvelous object lesson 
that should instill awe in others. So it's a marvelous sign showing power that results in people saying, wow, in awe. And when we misplace our hope, because that's what happened here, the king of Assyria will lead them away, will lead, verse 4, the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles. Now, Egypt was quite the superpower in the day, and it extended, the borders of Egypt were not where modern Egypt are today, but instead extended south to a region called Cush, and it was uh, as far as uh, South Sudan. So it was a very large kingdom, And what God is saying here, before it happens, he is predicting, God is predicting that the king of Assyria will lead away the Egyptian captives and Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, just like Isaiah looks there in verse 4, they're going to be led away. And then look what happens in verse 5. What happens to us when we put our hope in something and we expect a good outcome? Look at verse 5, and it doesn't happen, then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and of Egypt their boast. One of the undercurrents in Isaiah is this issue of trust. Who are you going to trust in? And as Assyria rose in power, different nations would try to create different alliances to protect them from Assyria. But we're told here it doesn't do any good. And we may not do that. I mean, as individuals, we're not going to go form an alliance with a different country to stand against another country. But there's still ways that you and I look to other things besides God, besides His grace, His love, for significance, for life, for satisfaction. I mean, think about it for a moment. In Bernie, Texas, what are things people depend upon besides God for deliverance? I mean, we can think of money, success, family, entertainment, distraction, being nice, karma, politics, different procedures and laws. And when we depend on those things instead of the power of God, we will be dismayed. We will be disappointed. You know, one of the the high school I went to, had a uh, homecoming fair. So they ended class kind of halfway through the year, uh, or halfway through the day, excuse me, on, on a Friday, and they had this fair for homecoming out in the parking lot, and it was a lot of fun. I mean, I had an analog childhood, and it was just so fun. And one of the things they had, they had a dunking booth. Okay, they had a dunking booth. Those have been canceled, by the way. I'll tell you why. But a dunking booth, let me explain, because we all need to sort of maybe have a refresher on it. A dunking booth, the bottom of it is a tank that you put water in, and then halfway up this booth, you have a board that goes across, and then you have chain link around the top of it, and someone sits on that board, and out to the right is an arm, and it leads to a metal target. Am I jogging your memory now? And that metal target, you throw baseballs at it, and you hit it, and it causes the person in the dunking booth to go down into the water, and everybody has a laugh. And of course, this was part of the 
homecoming shenanigans that we were involved with and we loved. And of course, the person who's in the dunking booth, this is why it's been canceled. They try to distract who's ever throwing the ball. And one of the ways you distract them is you insult them. And because people don't laugh at themselves anymore, don't you miss those times? We have canceled the dunking booth. But it was a lot of fun. And we would, various teachers would go in there. It was a great time for students to have revenge on their teachers in a lighthearted way. And of course, the, the climax of it was when the principal got in there. And usually we reserved our baseball pitchers for when the principal got in there. And one after the other pitcher was up and that principal got nice and wet over and over and over again. This is a picture really of God's grace when we are sitting on the plank, so to speak, of depending upon something like money or success or family or maybe our own ability to innovate or entertain and distract ourselves. When we're depending on those things, God, who always throws a perfect pitch, can knock us down from there. And the hope that we have placed, and just an aside here, next year is a presidential election, 2024. I am not going the way of 2020 next year. What do I mean by that? Oh, you saw the evangelical populace manipulated and taken out for a spin in terms of a voting block. I was told in no uncertain terms that I needed to encourage you all to vote a certain way and that this was my biblical responsibility. No, it's not. Why didn't our church endorse candidates? Because we know where the real power is. No, I'm not going to encourage God's people to sell their evangelical birthright for a bowl of porridge politics. Where's the real power in this life? It's with God. It's through the gospel. The only power, the only hope that we have for true transformation in the hearts of people is through the gospel. God's people declaring uh, how great He is, worshiping Him. It's the power that is in prayer for God to change hearts. No, I'm not selling my evangelical birthright for a bowl of disappointing porridge. But let me tell you this, if you depend on politics, if you really think, oh, we're going to get our guy, we're going to get our guy in the White House and it's all going to change and I'm going to have a good life, you will be dunked. God will do it. And it's part of his grace. When we depend upon other things besides the Lord, he'll dunk us. He'll bring us down. We need a better hope. When God shatters your dreams, he does so to a point that he might get our attention and we might turn to him. All hardships, all trials, all disappointments are opportunities for God's people. Not to turn away from God, but to turn towards Him in renewed dependence upon Him. So you see here in verse 5, they shall be dismayed and ashamed 
because they put their hope in those who couldn't deliver. So let us return as God's people. Whenever we're dismayed, whenever our dreams are shattered, let us return to the only one we can really rest on. He is our firm foundation. And so we see, how shall we escape this determined obedience? When we are dismayed, when we hope for different and it doesn't happen, we return to God in repentance and trust and hope in Him. And then we are devastated by God's grace. Look at this at verse 6. And the inhabitants of the coastlands will say in that day, Behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. Now the coastlands, you can think of this, I've mentioned this before, that's the furthest reaches. And so from, we might say in Texan, high and low, what are people saying? This is what happened. If you hope in someone or something else, this is what will happen. You will be disappointed. You will be devastated. But I want you to understand and know this is part of God's grace in your life, that He loves you enough not to let you rest and depend on someone or something else. How shall we escape? Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, verse 24, in the first part of verse 25, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It's an echo of that passage in Isaiah. And then Paul writes in Romans 7, 25, Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is indeed through Christ alone, He who took on the punishment that we deserved. He who became what Isaiah was, naked barefoot, punished, tortured. He took that on for us that we might escape. Let me give you an application as you think about your week ahead. Tell a story on yourself. Tell it to your children. Tell it to your grandkids where you depended on someone or something else. You can even say, you know, I went to the polls in 2020 and I thought it was going to be different. And I was disappointed. Tell a story on yourself. You know, so often the stories we tell, who's the hero of them? We are. Tell a story where God's the hero. Where he showed you the error of your ways, convicted you, knocked you down, brought you low, humbled you. Tell a story about that. So how are we going to escape this crazy world, the rising tide of God deniers? How are we going to escape? It's a determined obedience based on how God loves us and how holy He is. When our dreams are shattered, when we're dismayed by misplaced hope, we're called to course correct, to come back, to repent and return to God alone. And then when we are devastated, we cast ourselves on the only one who provides the means of escape by faith alone, through Christ alone. Let's pray together. Lord, how we ask that indeed you would help us to have such passion, such conviction, 
that we, like Isaiah, would walk with you and obey you. Lord, let us know better your love and your holiness. And then when we are disappointed, when you bring us down, when we are humbled, we pray, let us return to you that we might by your grace experience yet again your great love, providence, and care. So refresh us in the wonder of what it means to be called a Christian and enable us by your grace to stand strong, to have a firm faith even in times like this. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.